Hey guys, Bill here from The Woke and Baked, and today I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to Leif Abel. He is the owner of Greatland Ganja, one of the two owners, along with his brother Art. They are one of the first commercial cannabis cultivators in Alaska. In fact, uh, they were there from the fight to get cannabis legalized in 2014 and I had the opportunity to uh, to talk to Leaf during the campaign to keep cannabis legal uh, just last year. So it's a very informative interview. He's a really interesting guy and I have a feeling that we're going to be talking to him a lot in the future. All right. Thanks for checking out Woke and Baked and enjoy the interview. All right. I am here at Great Land Ganja with Art and Leaf Abel. How you doing, Leaf? Hey there, how's it going, Bill? I'm doing great. Fantastic. So uh, I had some questions for you about Greatland. You were the first cultivator, legal, uh, first legal cultivator in Alaska. You've been here from the beginning, yourself and your brother. Um, what changes have you seen uh, in the last three years since the legislation passed? There have been a lot of changes. First of all, I'll clarify, I think we're probably the second license in the state, and we did have the first um, legal harvest uh, to our name, which, you know, we were proud of. Uh, but yeah, being one of the first ones, um, legislative changes. Uh, was that the question in the last, since we started operating? Not necessarily legislative changes, but since uh, cannabis has uh, become something that you go into a store and, and purchase as an adult. What changes have you seen as far as in the market? Let's, let's go with that one first, not yeah. since legislation. So, um, so market changes, obviously, you know, the, uh, the folks here in Alaska for oh, about a year and a half now have had the privilege of going into a regulated retail and buying legal, um, cannabis that, you know, has been taxed by the state of Alaska, uh, which is fantastic. Um, and that market, you know, for a while, for the course of about um, eight to eight months to a year, um, just kept kind of growing and growing into itself because there, you know, it hadn't reached capacity. There were enough people that were excited about this new privilege, many of whom were first-time cannabis consumers or were consumers that hadn't consumed very often or were consumers that, you know, may have decided they um, wanted to try something different from the unregulated. Um, a lot of what a lot of the customers that went to those um, went to this market in in, in, the, in in the beginning and all the way through now um, seem to be an older age demographic, um, and they seem to be people that um, you know had careers and jobs, and a lot of that probably had to do with price point, and a lot of it probably had to do um, with the fact that you know uh, younger folks had steady supplies on the unregulated market already, and people are creatures of habit. Uh, so you know we. We had a, an uphill battle to slowly win over an entire market that was created and running along just fine over to um, regulated so that we could, you know, have the cultivators pay taxes, have the people come in and buy lab tested um, cannabis and where you can get variety and you know, you know, when your store is going to be open. And, you know, um, if you're lucky, you maybe even be able to call up the farm and go visit who grew it, you know, and get a tour. Uh, so, you know, these are all things that we offered and, um, you know, that process of, of winning over um, winning over the market kind of reached saturation at a price point level because um, only a certain amount um, of the people who smoke cannabis in the state of Alaska um, can afford 
you know, that additional $800 a pound tax um, that the state of Alaska uh, taxes on. So, you know, every time I sell a pound of cannabis um, to a retail so that they can um, sell it uh, to the wonderful people of Alaska, we have to pay $800 a pound. Of course, that gets passed on because everybody has to eat and make money. So that, uh, that and the end consumer is really paying for that. And so, you know, when you have that $800 a pound vari- variance, you really can only chip away so far at the market. Uh, price point matters a lot to a lot of people. People. Um, there are good growers. Um, there's there's good product being cultivated out there on the unregulated side. Um, so you know, in order to uh, you know expand our regulated market, we're going to have to work on price point, and you can only drive that so low uh, with that tax burden. So, if you were to put a percentage, like what percentage are you being taxed at? Uh, if you could guess at a number. No, oh, I don't have to guess. I just, uh, you know, this is January, so we're in, the, in, in our end of year books here, which uh, you're, you're giving me an excuse to not look at books right now. But um, 36% excise tax uh, our company paid last year. Okay. If you could put a number that you think would be fair that you uh, you would argue for as a cultivator, not necessarily for a cultivator, but I'm a consumer. Can we pay my zero? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Darn it. No, we're just I'm, about I'm a consumer myself, uh, proudly. And. Uh, yeah, so you do want to see if, some of those numbers go down. If I was in a in negotiation um, with you know the state government over this, I, I probably would be happy at fifteen percent. I would probably be happy if we could settled at that. Um, is that likely? I don't know. I don't know if it's likely. It's certainly not likely this year. We we had a few legislators that were interested in the idea of writing a bill to help us because you know they support jobs and this sort of tax actually will kill jobs. Companies will go out of business if this doesn't get changed. Um, and, um, you know, but once the legislative session um, went, uh, started, and the, but with the bu- budget crisis being the way it is, they had plenty of excuses not to write that bill. Um, so, in effect, you know, it's not popular to cut anybody's, you know, any company's taxes right now or any, any um, industry's taxes. Um, the flip side of that is it will um, kill businesses and it will uh, cost jobs um, if things keep going the way they are. It's kind of a bummer. We, uh, we just got through an election cycle where all of this was on the line. Um. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of cultivators out there who feel that way. Um, there are some cultivators who, that are in really bad straits, literally can't make their bills, have um, you know product, and they're right here in our very own Kenai Peninsula. And uh, I would, I hope they all make it, but it's not looking great. If the state would like to expand the market without lowering those taxes, they could give us delivery services. That would double the market overnight. Which is a question that seems right. absolutely appropriate. Uh, why haven't we seen delivery services? We have. Well, we saw one. There's multiple delivery services and we're operating still in the state right now. They're just not licensed and they don't play tax, pay taxes. Um, they, some of them operate, and at least uh, as of a month ago, we're, we're still advertising in major publications here in Alaska. Um, you know, uh, they have call centers, literally, people answering phones. I mean, I know that they were really only selling the bags and not the weed. That just came with the bag. But um, stiff competition for us, especially since they show up at your door and you don't even have to go anywhere and worry about getting pulled over by the APD when you're, you know, having fun. Who wants that? They get to offer all that. You know, people get to be safe at home. Uh, it gets brought to their door. And that is all offered by uh, the unregulated market and not taxed. Uh, you know, I think it would be, would be, uh, I think Art's suggestion's great. I think it'd be extremely reasonable to allow, um, licensed regulated, um, companies to provide that service, um, with oversight from the Marijuana Control Board instead of zero oversight. 
Okay. Now, what about the edible market on uh, in Alaska? That uh, seems to be another area that uh, people have pointed at and asked for some kind of growth. Uh, it, the the regulators created a regulation that almost makes it impossible to operate edible manufacturing without violating regulation. Um, so when you say that you have to have a minimum of five milligrams of THC with a variant maximum variance of twenty percent especially in a new industry where people just figuring out how to manufacture and homogenize, um, it's really hard to hit 20% variability on five milligrams of a drug in a cookie. It is really hard. And um, when you when your lab is showing a pretty large variance in their own testing and um, you are supposed to be testing your product before you cook it and then, or I mean the incoming raw material um, which makes sense you want to know what you're starting with how else would you hit that number um, and then you also have to um, batch test your outgoing cookies and you have that lab variance it's really hard so you not only do you have your own variability and homogenization but you're having to beat that lab variability and still hit that five milligram plus or minus 20 percent it makes it super hard and and I think that um, until that's changed uh and also, it also makes it hard. Okay, here's the other reason it makes it hard. It makes it hard to market. Uh, most uh, everyday consumers can't feel um, five milligrams. And if they can, it's so mild that they want way more than just one. Um, to, if, and, and if you're using it as a sleep aid or pain medication, which a lot of people are using edibles for that, can get you off Ambien, can get you off all sorts of pharmaceuticals that are really bad for you. And um, they, they, they aren't being served in that market. So if you're offering them a five milligram edible, you're not doing them any good. Uh, so it's hard to market, and um, it's a hard uh, number to hit with the lab variants right now. Uh, so it's just that's why um, we're seeing, you know, a high demand for edibles and low production in the state. Okay, I remember reading, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, former Chief Milnark was on the side of on-site consumption for edibles. He was I like, can't he- remember specifically. There have been some people that are more um to them it's more acceptable uh, there was there was one fellow and, and it wasn't Milnard, but um he was a, a police uh, chief and, and it was more acceptable to have on-site consumption for edibles because they don't want um if officers are responding to um a business where on-site consumption is being um, held they don't want their officers to get high from the secondhand smoke and that was the reasoning for that um i don't know uh <laughs> i don't know if they've had that issue before, I mean, there's certainly, you know, that we have a high rate of smoking in Alaska of smoking cannabis. And I imagine that the police in this state have responded to plenty of buildings where cannabis was being smoked. And I haven't heard of that resulting in a negative effect. So it sounds a little bit like a way to try to extinguish, you know, a good portion of on-site consumption that, you know, should be allowed, which I believe, you know, smoking, vaping, edibles, I think uh, all of it should be allowed. I think our current um, on-site consumption set doesn't allow um, um, the use of um, the concentrates. So I think it'll just be flour and edibles, maybe. Um, I'd have to look because um, they're worried about um, the really hard stuff uh, and, and people then having to leave uh, the location. And I, I uh, that was air quotes, by the way, the really hard stuff, um, the hash and the concentrates. <laughs> That really, really hard keep hash. <laughs> that'll that'll do you every time, especially if you're trying to take a nap and and enjoy, you know, episode three. And, and get around to that next cup of coffee. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Times are tough. You know, there's quite a few products that aren't available to medical consumers, and uh, I think a possible solution to 
um, the edible situation and uh, a lot of uh, other products that just aren't available right now on the recreational market would be some kind of a coexisting medical program um, where you would know that if someone had a medical card, they've spoken with their doctor and they've been educated well enough to buy uh, a, a high THC edible or something like that. Um, you know, that, that's a possible solution for this issue where they could have the recreational market for people who they're worried about being beginners with the lower THC stuff and then the medical stuff for people who are more serious cannabis users. Well, I've seen that in retail in Washington where there is a separate entrance to the building for medical Everywhere users. Everywhere but here. And I mean, it's, I mean, it's, to me, it's criminal that you can't walk in and get RSO for a cancer patient. I mean, literally, we've done all this work in Alaska as cannabis activists, and cancer patients still can't walk into a store and buy um, RSO here in the state. Okay. Um, what is RSO? Um, well, you could also call it uh, FICO. It's full extract cannabis oil, um, Rick Simpson oil. He was one of the reason I say RSO is he was one of the original people who, who figured out how to make it. Um, and, and was most famous for, you know, he was kind of, I guess he was probably retired, didn't need any money, so he grew a big field of it, and he gave a bunch away to a lot of people. And um, you know, because of that, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of reports of how it was helping people because the volume he did. So I think he was the first person that did any volume of that type of uh, medicine. And so that's why it's, uh, a lot of people refer to it as RSO, but full extract cannabis oil. I do um, I, I, ma I make something that's similar. Um, I call it you know I call it low temp um, full extract because I keep it. Um, below um, 170 degrees, a lot of people think you can't activate THC at that level, but if you do it at right and you do it long enough, you can. And furthermore, you maintain all the terpenes and you don't flash off any of the volatile terpenes, which are the smell and flavor and have an entourage effect with the cannabinoids. And you also don't flash off any of the cannabinoids. Some of them are very sensitive and also flash as well. Um, so, uh, you know, these types of medicines should be available. Right now, people still have to come to me and I still have to, you know, make it on the uh, medical side and give it to them. And, you know, uh, Alaska is not allowed for medical dispensaries where you actually have sales and pay taxes. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not safe or legitimate access to medicine by any means. Okay. How did you get uh, involved in Great Land Granja? How did you get involved in growing? If you don't mind me asking. Oh, we're second generation cannabis cultivators. Uh, you know, this, this fed me when I was a kid. Uh, it still feeds my family. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it this way. I, I like being able to um, not worry about my kids going to school and saying what they, what their dad does for a living. I think that's great. Um, if we can keep our business going and, and I'd love, love it if one of uh, my kids or one of my brother's kids wanted to you know keep running the business as a family business in the future uh this is a family business we'd like to see it stay that way uh if we can get proper regulation and uh some tax changes maybe that'll happen <laughs> okay so what do you see as the future of cannabis in this state oh cannabis is always going to be um you know medicine yeah, i like to call it the people's plant uh some people are worried about the pharmaceutical companies taking it away from us they, they well it's kind of hard for them to do that you know we all can continue to grow it as medicine i don't think that's going to happen um, i also think that the the fact that we've had states create um you know state by state rules uh kind of mirroring alcohol will always mean that we're going to, we're going to have our state systems which is a good thing for the smaller businesses um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that cannabis is always going to be a large uh, part of a certain population here in Alaska. And I think that one of the things that I'm really excited about is to see what 
um, what's coming with cannabis tourism. I think that we can be a tourist destination here. And, and some people are worried about that and think that it's a, a, a negative thing, but I think it's an extremely positive thing. I think that um, cannabis tourists are exactly the type of tourists we want up here. Um, they're genuinely, generally um, peace-loving, happy individuals, um, and a lot of them love nature. Uh, a lot of them love um, you know, hiking, hunting, camping, biking, skiing. Um, so I think that not only will it be a boon to cannabis businesses, but uh, all of the other business, tourist businesses that you know, serve Alaskans currently. Uh, and that's probably something that we're going to see really kind of shape up over the next five years to be really excited about um, how that shapes up. Once again, it um, relates directly to whether we get on-site consumption, whether we get delivery, and how um, the state handles the tax issue. I imagine it is a beautiful place. I agree with you 100%. I think that the future of Alaska, especially this part of Alaska, is going to be, in large part, going to be cannabis tourism. We offer the best views in the world, and we're offering some of the best cannabis in the world, some of the best food. It's oh, I know, right? The food, too. I mean, we've, we've got and then the microbreweries. I mean, it's a really... That, we're, we're primed here for being a really good tour. I mean, we already are a really good tourist destination, but I think it can expand beyond uh, what we have. I think cannabis can add not just an itty-bitty sliver, but a huge component um, to, to tourism here in Alaska, and especially on the Kenai Peninsula. If you, I mean, just thinking about that as a rational person, as someone who, who lives here and gets to smoke weed and take walks in the woods, if you're coming here as a tourist from some other place, uh, this would be the perfect opportunity to get your walk in the woods, fresh air, cannabis is legal, and the people are friendly. My, what I want to see is how do we connect international tourism to get people here? How do we get a businessman from uh, Belize to, to come up here to spend his vacation, to spend his summer up here? How do we get a Chinese tourist uh, to come to Alaska to try our fine cannabis and our fishing? I, I really do think that we are uh, we are primed to become the the connoisseur of uh, cannabis Europe, tourism. I think targets are real good targets would be Europe and um, Asia. Definitely, I think you're right about drawing from uh, you know China, uh, Japan. I think that we should be looking at um, Europe as well. Uh, I think so. I mean, the blueprint for this is there. We're not the first ones that wanted to market something tourism, and we're not the first ones that mar wanted to market tourism and make a destination you know, and market that worldwide. Um, so I think that, you know, it's kind of like the pieces are kind of there already. So first we need to, um, you know, like the state tourism and marketing, you know, bureau needs to, um, pretty much come to terms with an okay and support us. And that's, we, we aren't quite there yet. And all the local chambers of commerce and all of the, you know, um, for all the cities and all the boroughs, they all need to start looking at cannabis businesses um, as the boon they are, just like they look at the microbreweries and, and, and everybody else. And um, because that those are the avenues by which you create advertising campaigns and all the funding doesn't fall on one company or you know what I mean. Um, so it's about, it's about banding together and working with and becoming part of those other local, you know, business groups that are already there for advertising business and advertising tourism and using those um, state agencies that are already there for doing that exact thing. And basically, becoming accepted as another big kid in the room, if you will, um, just like any other business that they should be advocating for. Well, it was uh, very cool. I don't know if you uh, made it to the economic uh, development discussion last week. I didn't. I spoke to Mark about it, though. He told me it went well. It went very, very well. And I've had, 
I don't want to say names on record, but uh, people who are people who are, I don't know, people of significance in our in our elected hemisphere were asking me, you know, how do they get tours of different places? So I think that bring them back. Yeah, well, I think what we're going to see in a very real way is uh, the opening up of people um, in in elected office who see this as the boon that it could be. Because you and I are not the first people to have the discussion of cannabis tourism here. We started to see it um, the very first summer that that it became legal. Even I mean, the, even during. Uh the uh, campaigning for ballot measure two people were talking about it. I mean, people have been aware of this as one of the, po- you know, hopefully positive side effects of, you know, cannabis legalization, you know, is another, I mean, I mean, this is Alaska. We are always looking for jobs up here. I mean, it's, it's, it's dim up here. I mean, you either have booms or busts and you're looking at like one or two. If you're lucky, you have more than one revenue source in an area. I mean, usually areas are either mining or fishing, oil field development. I mean, so when that one thing is doing bad, that area is doing bad so any sort of diversification um, like this is so important so naturally uh, people were talking about you know the tourism aspect of it i mean um, we i was part of a group uh, called the coalition for responsible cannabis legislation based here in alaska and we were talking to the alaska tourism marketing council during the um during during the campaigning before ballot measure two was even passed so it's it's an ongoing conversation for sure okay um so now that uh Proposition one. We talked about Proposition two, ballot initiative two. Uh, was it ballot initiative two? That was for the state. Yeah, for the yeah. state. And then props. It, prop one was our, our local uh, our local borough vote. Uh, were you at any time concerned about how that vote was going to go? Oh, all the way up until the results came in. <laughs> I mean, you know, I I think probably when people asked me, and I think you probably even asked me because you know I spoke to you uh, during the uh, campaign, and I probably seemed pretty confident, um, although hopefully not too much. Um, but you know, until something's counted, you know, it's just like when you're getting paid. You know, it's not there till it's there. Until that money's in your hand, until those votes are in, you haven't won something. Um, and you know, it affected you know our entire business, our entire family all of our employees. Uh, so that was, um, you know, that was definitely not something that, you know, I was comfortable with until the votes came in. And, you know, I have to say some of the um, side effects of that were both positive and negative. Um, you know, that took a lot of time and energy away from um, our business during a very, you know, liquid market, you know, when we could have been spending more time on the business, uh, which arguably might have put us a little behind, although that's kind of, you know, being behind is just uh a construct anyway but uh the positive side effects that it had is it bought a lot of political capital so when you had win by such large margins with something like that um anybody who wants to do something in politics has to pay attention because they have to be aware that you might bring that vote out again um and so when you want to go talk to them they can't just ignore you they have to take the time to listen and they have to actually see if they can help you because if they ignore you they're once again worried about that you know 60 to 75 percent you know, um, voter turnout um, coming after them. So um, I think that's been a positive side. And I think that's why you've probably seen a change at events um, like you spoke about where Mark was speaking. Um, you'll, you're going to see probably a pretty big difference there than you would have seen six months ago because um, largely because of those numbers and because of the fact that businesses have been existing now for a year and a half and the sky hasn't fallen. So uh, nationally, with uh, the rescinding of the coal memo, uh, were you concerned at all for what that might mean for you? Oh, you know, you'd always have, you always think about it. Uh, 
and and strategize we just you know it's just like anything else that happens in a business you say okay what what effect is this actually going to have this is how we adjust you know we uh, run it by the numbers um with something like that it's a little bit squishy there's no real numbers it's hard to tell what's going to happen uh i i never really felt like we were you know going to have the dea come in here and you know haul us off that's not how i took that um Lots of people got really concerned of what that did as it caused a chill effect. It's kind of, um, I think Art probably put it the best. I broke it down all different ways, but really when it comes down to it, um, that his rescinding of the Cole memo had as much effect as effect as everybody gave it. And, and that's, they gave it that effect with their fear. Um, so by having fear, certain banks, shut down payroll companies accounts and caused you know different things to happen like you know all of a sudden employees had to get paid cash instead of direct deposit and um, which costs businesses money um in time because time is money um and you know and any number of other um uh, unknown effects that you couldn't uh, couldn't quantify one effect i can say happens is um you know our own enforcement here in the state says okay we need to really be able to prove to the federal government that this is a robust system. And so they're on our side. They want to support all of our businesses. We're paying their paychecks to be enforcement. Um, they think the best way that they can um, support us and protect our state system is by making sure that they um, give enough violations, crack down all the bad actors, make sure it's a clean system. So, you know, these types of things, while they don't necessarily result in the DEA kicking in a, a you know, a licensed establishment in the state of Alaska and arresting them, they do prosper they do directly result in upticks in NOVs, notices of violation, um, and, you know, monetary fines and all of that to cannabis businesses. And they definitely slow down um, investment money to a huge deal. Um, I know that California was immediately affected by that um, just right off the bat as far as, like, investment money moving towards um, the uh, California uh, cannabis, newly legal kind of California cannabis market. So that's kind of effect it has in the, in the long run. You do, you know, in the long run, when we when we got these licenses, this was a Schedule uh, One narcotic on the federal level, and it still is today, and not really as much has changed. All right, hey, uh, Art, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, to, yeah, I mean, uh, not really. I mean, that's about it. It, it. it it it's just another bump in the road. It doesn't really change anything. Um, at this point. Uh, you know, if, if I let everything like that stress me out, it just seems like it would never end. So of all the things we've had to deal with, I think that bothers me the least. Um, it, it cost me one hour every two weeks of uh, counting out money for folks, and that's about all it's affecting my life. So, uh. All right. All right. Uh, Leaf, Nart, thank you very, very much for your time. Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Thanks.